This is part two of the message I began last week. It is called Justification, Sanctification, Salvation, and Glorification. The four shuns. The New Covenant portion will be found in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And to review, the Greek word dekaios, or justification, simply means to make something righteous. It relates to the Hebrew word tzaddik. Tzaddik is a righteous man. When I came to faith in Yeshua, I was made righteous by a single declaration by God. Your sins have been forgiven. 1972 was a personal yuval, a year, a personal year of jubilee. My sins had been forgiven and everything returned back to the way it was. It was a reset. That's what Yuval is. A new man began a new journey to behold the face of God. The new covenant is quite clear on this matter. Apart from a faith in Yeshua, there is no eternal application to the words justification, sanctification, or salvation. I will first tell you where I sit before I tell you where I stand. I, as Paul, work out my salvation with fear and trembling, and I fear the exact same thing that Paul feared. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I discipline my body and make it subject so that after having preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I know a lot of people, they're very secure in their salvation. Me and Paul, not so much. We're kind of concerned. Paul writes about it. He says, those of you who think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Walking circumspectly is real useful. In Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Peter reveals the exclusivity of Yeshua when queried about the man that he had healed. And he says this, This Yeshua is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. Salvation, which is the word Yeshua in Hebrew, exists in no one else, for there is no other name under the heavens given to man by which he must be saved. Paul uses a similar kind of construction analogy to describe Yeshua in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Yeshua. Some build on that foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, others with wood, hay, and stubble. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work remains, 
he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved as by fire. The New Covenant is, again, very clear. Yeshua is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. He is Sharei HaShamayim, the gate of heaven through which all must pass in order to enter into that realm. Yet this truth that I hold to be self-evident, I mean, this is... I don't know how you can misunderstand this with all these verses, and that's just a tiny portion of the scriptures that speak about the exclusivity of Yeshua. Yet there are there is a significant portion of the body of Messiah who rejects this. It's astonishing to me. Millions in the liberal church declare that there is one God, but many different paths to him. Buddhists and Islam and whatever. It just goes on and on. Christian Zionists have applied a radical dispensationalist view to the New Covenant and believe Yeshua is the only way of sa to salvation for the Goyim, the nations. Jews can be saved by following Torah, God's law. So there's no reason to declare the name of Yeshua to them. They cite the horrific behavior of the church towards the Jewish people and declare believers should just love them. Reveal Mashiach by loving them. Paul, a Jew, utterly rejects this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says this, Through the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified before him. I don't know how you can misunderstand that, Obviously, it is possible. But the law will not justify anyone. Paul affirms a very ancient Jewish understanding about Mashiach. You know, try to understand. Today, the concept of Mashiach is part of the nations. In the first century, what did the nations know about a Mashiach? Is he bigger than a bread box? What, what is he? They didn't even know what it was. Paul affirms a very ancient Jewish understanding concerning the Messiah. This understanding is found in one of the books of the Medrashim. A Medrash is a collection of sermons or commentaries or both. And this particular one is called Pesikta Rabati. And it says, The fathers shall stand up in the month of Nisan, at Passover, and say to Mashiach, Though we are the fathers, you are better than us, for you have reconciled us to God. 
according to the sages of my people, even Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov needed Mashiach to be reconciled to God. Paul certainly agrees with this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we are reconciled to God through Yeshua's death. The Jewish apostles of the first century certainly believed they needed Yeshua. They risked their lives proclaiming his name to their brethren throughout Israel and throughout the Jewish enclaves that existed throughout Asia Minor. Man has muddied the pure, clean water of God's word, but Yeshua's words still illuminate the heavens. They stand alone and they stand eternal. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we come to know the one true path to God, that truth sets us free. You hear that a lot in Pentecostal churches. It is accompanied with a dip. I, I can't dip anymore. <laughs> My last dip stayed down. But what does that mean? We're set free. We're saved. What are we set free from? What are we saved from? Most don't even ask the question. And those who do, some, some declare that, or suggest that we're freed from God's law. We're free. But the law was not the enemy of God's people. Torah actually means instructions. If you translate it properly, very few would say we're free from God's instructions. That's ludicrous. The law revealed our need for a savior. It pointed to the one who would come and bring salvation. Because there is no one who knows more this truth than those who try to follow the law. You can't do it. It's simply impossible. If I don't follow the instructions when I assemble a piece of furniture and it falls apart, can I stand there and blame the instructions? Am I to be like, like uh, Adam? when he is confronted by God and he goes, no, it's not my fault. It's this woman you gave me. It's not my fault. It's these instructions. They're not written clearly. I'm innocent. Yeah. That won't fly. Anywhere. I just see that in traffic court. Why were you doing 65 and a 35? Well, I'm innocent. It's a stupid law. Increase the speed limit, and then I'll be legal. That will not only give you a fine, but get you an extended stay at Fort Logan. Paul tells us, 
what was saved from by revealing the problem and then revealing the solution. I draw from the well of Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 8. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The solution. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. We are saved from the wrath of God through Yeshua. Who is the truth? To those who suppress the truth, the wrath of God is revealed against them. Those who are lovers of truth, they find Yeshua. Salvation is promised in the Tanakh, but not realized in the Tanakh. Justification is not salvation. They are two different things. Augustine's words ring true. The old is salvation, in the old, salvation is concealed. In the new, Yeshua, salvation is revealed. Isaiah spoke of God's salvation. It's spoken of, just wasn't achieved. Isaiah declares, Hineel Yeshuati, behold, God is my salvation. The word Yeshua is salvation. The suffix T means my. It makes it possessive. Hineel Yeshuati. The saints of Tanakh had to wait for Yeshua, to wait for salvation to come to, to God's people. Hebrews 11 lists those who were justified by their faith but were not saved. Justification, again, is not salvation. They are two different aspects of the good news. We're told in Hebrews 11 that all of these saints, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, all, all the people that are mentioned in this litany of holy ones, saints, they all died without receiving the promise that they would not be made perfect apart from us, both in the Tanakh and the Brit HaDashah. There is one name under the heavens by which a man might be saved. It was the whole purpose of Sheol that we read about in Scripture. The pleasant side my people call Avraham's bosom. And it was basically a holding tank for those souls justified by faith and who died prior to the coming of salvation, the coming of Yeshua. The souls who never came to faith reside in the unpleasant side of Sheol called Gehenna. This is described by Yeshua in Luke chapter 16 when he tells us about Lazarus and the rich man. When Yeshua resurrected, those souls that were justified by their faith obtained the promise of salvation. They rose up from their graves, glorified with him, and they walked the streets of Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 27. And many saw them. With the resurrection of Mashiach, Avraham's bosom was emptied. The side holding the evil souls awaits his return 
where the wrath of God will be revealed. Now for the faithful, Paul tells us about it, to be absent from the Lord, uh, from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Peter speaks about justification in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, uh, 38 through 39. And I'm going to bring up a lot of scriptures because hopefully you want to hear what God has to say, not just what I have to say. Peter speaks this way. Brothers, and he's pleading. Brothers, listen. In this man, Yeshua, there is forgiveness for your sin. Everyone who trusts in him is freed from all guilt and declared the coyotes righteous or justified. It's a free gift, justified, righteous. Now, if all he did was forgive my past sins, it would have been sufficient. It would have been enough. But there's so much more. His light illuminated the holy and righteous path that leads to him. And he accompanies me on that journey. If I have the faith to remove my hand from the rudder, his holy wind will steer a straight course to where he is, so that where he is, I shall be also. We're told about this in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, where my teacher will appear to me, and he'll stand behind me, and he'll whisper in my ear whenever I want to turn to the left or the right, this is the way, walk in it. He doesn't leave me to navigate this path alone. He's with me every step of the way, according to the word of God. My love for God releases his grace toward me. My love for him causes me to desire to walk in his ways. But of course, I often fail. This is not a sermon on how righteous the rabbi is. Nobody who's been here more than 20 minutes would ever accuse me of that. Some of my works will survive the divine fire revealed in 1 Corinthians 3. Others will be consumed. When I am willing, I allow the pure, clean water of God's word to wash over me and leach all that is not of him from me. When I am unwilling, his divine fire burns up all that is not of him. Trust me, the first way is gentler. And therefore, ultimately, my holiness, my sanctification, is a result of God's grace as well. Romans chapter 7 describes the battle that rages in each and every human being, the battle between the flesh and the spirit or the wind in a man. Paul's spirit is certainly willing, but his flesh is weak according to his own testimony. 
The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, these are the things I do. And he concludes that this wretched condition is made right through only one, Yeshua. My, my love of God releases his grace towards me. The faith of a young shepherd was sufficient to step out onto the battlefield and fight giants. But that faith was insufficient to turn his eye from the glory of Bathsheba when he beheld her in the fullness of her glory. David's love for God caused God to see him to an eye of mercy. And God declares to the, about David that he is a man after my own heart. He pants after God, like a deer pants after water. He's after that heart. And that's why David is my absolute favorite character in all of Scripture. He gives this sinner hope. Maybe God will see me through the eye of mercy also. Yeshua tells Nicodemus that he must be born again or born from above to see the kingdom of heaven. And those who sit and argue about whether it's born from above or born again miss the point. That statement refers to a specific condition that is revealed in Genesis 5 and is fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 15. It is not just a little trite state statement. It is a description of what happens literally. The first Adam, the first man, was created B'Tselem V'Demut Elohim in the image and likeness of God. But Adam sinned, and Adam fell short of the glory of God. Adam's first child, after the death of Havel, Abel, was Shet. He is described in a completely different way than Adam, the first man. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Shet. Shet was born in the image and likeness of man, Adam, not God profound difference. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 is discussing Yeshua and the power of the second Adam, the second man. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving wind, a life-giving spirit. Same word, and we, we translate it differently in English, but it's pneuma in Greek life-giving wind. Yeshua has provided the opportunity to be born again from above, to be born again in the image and the likeness of God, not Adam. And this, this affects how my works, what I do, 
is seen by God. My good works cannot bring me to a knowledge of or a faith in God. Simply not possible. However, following my rebirth, I become a new creature. And Paul addresses this specifically in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's not by your works, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. In verse 10, he puts my works after salvation into context. For we are his workmanship created or reborn in Messiah Yeshua for good works. My good works do not compel God to save me. My righteousness in his eyes is as a filthy rag. It's a foulness. But once justified, forgiven, and once saved, my good works reveal God's presence within me. Let all men see your good works, that they might glorify your Father in heaven. They reveal the progress of holiness that is taking place. It's a progression that takes place within me. Further, my works have a profound effect on my eternal stature after salvation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 discusses, Yeshua says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Until heaven and earth pass away, the law is not, not a single jot or tittle will, will pass from the law. And then he says this, he who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He who keeps and teaches these commandments to others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's one thing to note, they're both in the kingdom of heaven. Just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, there's rewards and there is deficit. There is greatest and least. There are levels. It is certainly my hope that I will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I seriously doubt it. There's an old line from a, an old cowboy song that I used to quote often when I was up in Idaho. And God must be fond of mavericks because he made them wild and free. And that's all I ever wanted, to be wild and free. I accomplished that beyond all my wildest dreams. But I've come to love, I still love the song, but the theology is simply beyond ludicrous. I've ridden herd on a lot of cows and a lot of sheep. And I've done it for most of my life, and I can state this with absolute certainty. And I'll say it in the vernacular of my old life. There ain't never been no cowboy who loved Mavericks. They're a pain. 
They're always running off. And the cowboy has to leave the herd to find them. And when he does, he's got to drop a loop on them and then drag them kicking and bellering the whole way back to the herd. Why does he do that? He does that because the calf is part of that herd. And he knows that apart from that herd, that calf is not likely to survive. A lot of things that see that calf is lunch. And that calf will get itself in circumstances that he can't get out of. I praise God that I am less of a maverick these days than I was 50 years ago. The work of God's grace in me has depressed the urge to run off and be wild and free. Now I seek to be bar mitzvah Yeshua, a son of the commandments of Yeshua. That's what I want to be. Just like all of his disciples, I seek to be a bond servant. It's described in verse, uh, in chapter 21 of Exodus, one who recognizes that he is better off serving his master than going it alone. One who voluntarily becomes a servant of the living God. The restless soul of my youth has found the rest and the peace it has always searched for. In Yeshua, I have appropriated the words of the Bichat HaKohanim, the priestly blessing. The Lord has lifted up his face upon me and given me peace. To my young sister who has, is desiring to become bat mitzvah, Yeshua, a daughter of the commandments of Yeshua, I say this. If you walk in his word, he and the Father will come and they will make their abode within you. This is the way, the truth, and the life that is revealed in the name Yeshua. In him you are reconciled to God, and in him you will know peace. Father, in Yeshua's name, we give praise, honor, and glory to you tonight. We thank you for everything. There is nothing that we have, nothing we have avoided. That isn't the result of your love, your grace, and your mercy. Imbibe us with your holy wind, Lord. Fill our lungs. Strengthen us. With the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, we shall worship you for all eternity. You will lead us. You will guide us on that path that leads back to you. May we not be like the maverick. 
May we desire to be led by your Holy Spirit. In Yeshua's precious and holy name. Amen.